The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's guest is Michael Popham. Mike is the chief executive officer and co-founder of Stride, which is a pioneering seismic technology provider. Mike completed his PhD and then began his career with BAE Systems, where he held roles in engineering, sales, and strategy before moving on to BP, where the concept for Stride was formed. Stride was then spun out in 2019 with a mission to make high-density seismic affordable for any industry and application, ranging from oil and gas to geothermal energy to carbon capture and storage. So without further delay, here's my interview with Mike Popham. Mike. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me as well. I'm looking forward to today. So just for a sense of geography, where are you at right now? I am just outside London in the UK in in an area called Buckinghamshire. It's beautiful. It's a kind of lovely countryside, but close to London, 20 minutes outside London. Is that where you're originally from? No, no, I'm actually from the West Country originally. So the farming area of, of Britain. So I'm from the Somerset is where I grew up. But yes, yeah, so I'm kind of a country, grew up in the country, love the country. And I've kind of kept that bit of countryside in my life, even though I'm now actually working in London. So yeah, that's cool. Interesting. How did you get into the energy industry? I mean, obviously coming from the countryside of London, how did you migrate your way into energy? Give me a, like a little bit of background. Yeah, it's quite a random, a random path to where I am today. Um, so I started off doing a, a PhD in chemistry. And from that, I was actually going to go and teach. I thought, yeah, world and academia and teaching is for me. I took an interim job for a big defense and aerospace company, BAE Systems. And actually, I really liked it. I, I realized how much I love actually working with tech, designing technology, actually seeing it built, going out and marketing, etc. So I really enjoyed that and kind of learned how to do technology and how to engineer and promote it right. After a period later on, about eight years on from my, my BAE days, I actually started some consultancy work for them, looking at the oil and gas market. I then found, yeah, actually, this is a market where what I know about tech can really help. So, so that was really when I started sowing seeds. And BP were one of my first clients in that consultancy, and, and they soon after made me an offer to move. So, so that's how I got into where we are. And then I guess we'll talk about the transition to Stride later on. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, PhD in chemistry and then into technology, how did you, you know, how did you make that sort of those connections? Because obviously, like you said, you were thinking about teaching and then you got into the private sector. Sort of give us some stories about, you know, like why teaching wasn't for you. And then, you know, what was it that really switched it on for you and said, you know, I like technology? I guess the first part, I'm not sure teaching isn't for me still. I, I might go back there one day, but but there's a lot of career left. But it's specifically kind of, I've always been quite creative and loved science, obviously, having spent years doing chemistry. I just saw that there's a whole world of how to really spot a problem, design something perfect to fix it. And I, I just really enjoyed that whole journey from taking 
come, someone comes to you with a problem and you, you work with them collaboratively and with a team to just develop something which really changes the world in hopefully a good way. So yeah, that just drew it to me. I was hooked at that point. And since then, I've just stayed in love with tech. Specific for oil and gas, I guess, that the opportunity I saw there, it's, I think oil and gas is in some ways quite risk averse and, and in some ways behind the tech curve. So, so for there, for me, the mental step leap I took was, well, actually kind of taking the way technology is done and, and some of the ideas from other industries, the other approaches into oil and gas, that could really help that industry. And fingers crossed, I've proved that, that, that that's possible. So yeah, a mix of luck and some bold steps, I would say. That's another way to look at it. So when you were with BP, that's about the time you started working on the project that has led to the creation of Stride, right? Yeah, so I went to I joined BP in 2010, and initially I was working in a, in a different area. So I was working on an area of improving management of corrosion, improving integrity of facilities, kind of lots of reliability engineering and so on. And that was good fun, and it was a nice entry point because it kind of called on my chemistry as well. Obviously, I, having done my PhD over 20 years ago, I'm no longer a chemistry expert, but I, I could still relate to a lot of the problems and, and understand the conversations and the right solution. In about 2013, I was in a part of the business in, in BP, which was helping really commercialize good technology ideas. Um, so it's someone, a chap called Jack Busker had invented a new sensor concept, so kind of a, a potentially revolutionary seismic technology, a unique sensor. At that point, I worked with him and, and built a team around it. I, I kind of, we both recognized quite early on that this basic, really simple sensor could actually completely alter how how seismic's done across the world. And then took that technology through a series of kind of proof points and steps. So started off with just a limited number of prototypes, took those in the US and Canada, tested them alongside commercial products at the time, and you could see we were on something pretty special. Fast forward a few more years, and we were in a big collaboration with two other kind of household names in the energy area. So uh, Rosneft, the Russian state oil company, were a, a partner, and also Schlumberger, who were kind of a, a huge oil field services and technology company. And with that, that team, we kind of took the technology to near commercial readiness, I'd say, tested it in extreme hot and extreme cold environments. We took, took the product, the, the nodes, which are extremely small and light, they're kind of 150 grams, which is about a quarter of the size of anything else. They're about a quarter of the price point as well. And yet on a one-to-one basis, they're as good as anything else. So you can see there was a clear concept. And it was around actually proving it in different environments. So yeah, I took it to West Siberia where it was minus 40 and it, it worked like a charm. We kind of found you could you could do a seismic operation with about a quarter of the people, about a tenth of the vehicles, get a better image and still still save money in the process. And then the final stage was we actually broke a world record with this technology. So, so what's now called the Stride Node over in the Middle East working with ADNOC, we uh, set a new world record for land seismic trace density. That's quite a complicated term, but it's almost like adding pixels to your TV, if you like. So, so the more traces you have, the better your image is and the better your understanding of what's in the subsurface. So give the, you know, for, for all the listeners that are not seismic experts, sort of give the 30,000 foot view of, you know, the technology, but also the application and, you know, sort of the way it works. Yeah, so seismic, let's start with seismic. Seismic's a bit like ultrasound. So it's a, a bit like ultrasound, which you might use to see your, your unborn child in, in your wife's womb. Right. It's a bit like that, but on a much, much bigger scale. And what we're really trying to do is without drilling or intruding in the earth, we're working out down to kind of many, many miles. What are the layers of the rock kind of building an image of what's in the subsurface? And then also actually you learn about the rock properties. So with extreme density, you can start to learn, is this rock permeable? Does it contain fluid or gas, etc.? So, so that's seismic, first of all. I, I guess in terms of applications, it's something Stride are really keen on. Part of our mission is to kind of enable any client in any industry who can use seismic to get extremely high quality seismic, so extremely high definition images 
whilst spending less than they do at the moment with existing tech, whilst needing to put fewer people in the field to keep people safe and lowering the environmental footprint. So, so we're working in, obviously, oil and gas, that, that's by far and away the biggest user of seismic. But other markets are involved in a lot of work in mining around the world, carbon capture, underground storage, winning business in now, which is good. A lot of geothermal as well. So for geothermal, you need to both explore to work out is there geothermal potential, but then also monitor over time to make sure you don't get what we call micro seismic events, kind of small earthquakes occurring as a result of your plant. Um, also got into archaeology, so all, all kinds of different different areas. Um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting world. It's, it's quite neat. Like a lot of people, I mean, don't know what seismic is, and then as you start explaining it to them, everyone can always think of a different way in which it could be useful. So the technology that you guys have, right, it's, it's much smaller in comparison to traditional seismic technology. But I'd like to know, when you put this technology into the ground, how long does it stay there? Is it something that is a fixed asset? Like once you put it there, it stays there for a while, or do you take it in and then put it out? Like how does that work? Yeah, it's really easy to use. So, so it's hard for that visuals, but you, you've got some nodes. So you'll be walking in the field carrying a load of nodes. You wake them up with another device, plant them in the ground, and then they just record. At the moment, they record for up to twenty-eight days. We can obviously push that further. We're limited by the choice of memory chip at the moment rather than power. So, so if someone was to come to us and say, I need 50 days, for example, we could, we could do that. Yeah, and they then record for 28 days. Normally, you have what's called active seismic. So then you'll have some energy put into the earth, either through dynamite is kind of the classic technology used in some parts of the world, or fibrosized trucks, which are kind of giant lorries which shake the earth, put a lot of energy in. And the way seismic works, almost that energy is going into the ground. It's then reflecting off different layers and, and our nodes are then listening and detecting those vibrations. And then you go into, so, so that's kind of the raw seismic data. Then there's a whole process called processing, which is where you do some massive number crunching and some insanely hard physics. And from that, you end up with this really high definition, really clear picture of what's in the earth, as I said, for many, many miles down. How long does it take from start to finish? You, you mentioned like 28 days being normal, but is, is what's the normal length of operation? It depends. Really, I think with our technology, it's a lot shorter. So we've been doing, say, for some geothermal jobs uh, in some some parts of Britain. We did a survey in Britain recently, which was all over in a day. So literally a day was long enough. This wasn't a huge job. It was kind of a, a 10 kilometer line. They had a team of, I think, six people. They just laid out a number of nodes shook the earth, picked up the nodes, took it back. And then that's at the extreme short end. Equally with, with some of the competitors' technology, surveys can last two or three years. Typically, we find with our system, it, it's about a third faster than, than with any other technology. And that's just down to the size and weight. So you can transport a lot, a lot more of those per vehicle. You've got people can lay out maybe two or three times more nodes than with a much heavier, bulkier system. So it really transforms the, the speed of the whole operation. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about your transition from being, you know, a part of a big organization like BAE and BP to now heading up Stride, right? And what that transition has been like and sort of, you know, where you, how the company has, the journey of the company from when it, when it was started to where you are today and then where you feel the company or what your vision is for the company to go for the next couple of years. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Let's talk about the changes, first of all. So I think I always had this type of role in mind, but not necessarily in a startup. So, so I guess when I started, I'd have, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said, yeah, my dream job is to lead a technology division in a corporate. So a lot of the skills are the same. In terms of the specific stride journey, it was a case of actually going and pitching for funding. So even though at the time I was employed by BB, you've got to kind of build that investment case. Why is this a good investment of money? Why is it good for 
BP is an investor, but also for the world. And it's something we're really passionate about. We want to we almost be a force for good in, across a number of industries, if you like. And I use the technology to do things that are great for the world, like finding the right minerals to help electric vehicles be built, storing carbon long-term. But that, that's kind of our long-term vision is to really help any industry that can benefit from SolidSway. In terms of the vision of the journey, sorry, it was very much a case of getting that pitch. And then there was a big personal decision of, do I want to stay in corporate life? And, and BP are a great employer. I really, really enjoyed my career there. For me, it was a pretty simple one. And I think it's because I had the conviction. I knew, I knew this technology, which I was pitching to kind of commercialize the potential to change certainly the seismic market and a lot of industries. So for anyone thinking similarly, I think knowing or having that strong belief that you're going to succeed is a must. And then it's kind of a, oh my God, moment when suddenly you've gone from being in a, a big corporation with lots of people to help you to being on your own. And yes, you've got some money and you've got the rights to use the technology, but then actually building a team. And that's been a lot of fun. I mean, we've gone from, in about 18 months, we've gone from just me to 52 people in, I think we're in nine countries now. So that's been a rapid scale up in terms of people. A lot of fun, but also a lot of work, kind of finding the right people, the right skills, but the right, the right culture is extremely important as well. Then we started just going out and talking to clients and, and the immediate reception was fantastic. Like uh, Early on, everyone who saw this product, it's, if you're in seismic and you see our modes and you're used to other, other products, it's kind of, you pick it up and it's like, oh, wow, this is light, this is small, this is going to make my, my team's life, my company's life so much easier and so much better. That was really good. Then we had the COVID pandemic, which was starting a new business and then a, a kind of world changing event like that was an interesting time. That was kind of a nervous moment, but also actually helped us a lot in our journey because um, we'd always intended to diversify into lots of different markets and we kind of identified when the pandemic was going on that whilst maybe oil and gas services stopped because the, the oil price was low at the time for the other markets that we wanted to enter they were still going so it kind of almost made us pivot a bit and, and go earlier into geothermal mining ccus etc and that's been a big success yeah, that's the journey. I mean, we're 18 months on. I'd say we're on track to get 10 times revenue growth this year, which is pretty cool. So that's encouraging. We've got our products in 19 different countries so far. So kind of gone global and I think just about every continent, apart from South America. South America, we, we will have a job this year, but it's yet to be finalized. So yeah, really just taking this technology global. It's a lot of fun working with customers and, and happy customers who want to keep using the technology and like it, but also come up with these ideas of, this product's great, but it'd be even better if you could do this. It's, uh, yeah, and, and just keep growing. And, and from our side, really focus on those those key markets for us, which are, yes, oil and gas, but also CCUS. I think there's, it's really important for the world. Geothermal, really kind of getting clean energy. The world's got almost limitless geothermal energy to, to make this energy transition around it, and we're not using it yet. And then mining as well. I think those are the four key areas for us. We just want to keep growing, keep succeeding. So, you know, growing from one to 50 in 18 months, I mean, that's that's a huge growth as far as personnel goes. What would you say, looking back on it, if somebody was at that point where they're starting, give me, you know, probably the handful of key hires that you feel like when you're starting a, you know, a, a tech company like this for, you know, oil and gas or any energy industry vertical, what are some of the key hires and some of the key things that you say, like, these are lessons learned, like, these are things that, you know, you want to have these people in place. These are the first few people you want to, you want to bring on the team, especially if you're looking to expand beyond your backyard into other countries. I'd say the first point to start is someone who balances out your, your strengths and weaknesses. So you kind of, I, I think another founder or another C-suite member, depending how you, you organize your company, that 
is strong in the areas you're less strong is a, is a real help. There's a huge amount of energy needed to succeed in a startup and, and trying to take everything on yourself. I wouldn't recommend that to someone. So, so rapidly bring in people with the key expertise in the areas you need. So in, in our company, finding the right CTO and COO for us were, were huge. There are areas I've, I've spent a lot of time in, but I recognize I'm not the expert in those areas. So start there. And then, then I think it's very much driven by where you want to go. So for us, rapidly building up both the engineering team to kind of, we built this in scale in the R&D phase, but, but not at the scale we need to as a business. So bringing the engineering team to take us through that journey, bringing in field support so that as we start winning job, we've got the people who can help clients make sure that the system's a success. And then, then sales. So for us, very much identifying kind of people with the right culture that are going to fit in stride, but also have the right network. So maybe it's an experienced salesperson in, in the US was one of our early hires, for example. Now we're looking for kind of people who really, really understand the geothermal industry inside out. So really targeting. But yeah, I think the sales side is really important early on. Even if you don't sell anything, just getting out there, talking to customers, making those connections is really helpful because, yeah, people like your product. That starts generating revenue, etc. If they don't, the nice thing is people will go, I don't like your product because of this, and then you can go and fix this. So get out, get meeting people, get using the product in the field as soon as you can. I've heard, so just to sort of continue on that that line of, you know, getting sales, getting in front of customers or, or potential customers, I've heard, you know, like as a CEO, somebody once said that, you know, your job is you're the cash extraction officer and that your job is to go get money from everybody. And obviously that has, you know, you, you've got to develop sort of your sales acumen in that point, right? And somebody who maybe like, you know, has been working in, you know, big companies, PhD in chemistry, did you ever see yourself as like someone who was really good at selling or is that something that you had to develop as you, you know, took on a startup role? I had a reasonable amount of experience. First of all, I think the CEO's job is much bigger than bringing in cash. But I did have sales experience in the past. So BAI had sales roles, setting up a consultancy. Obviously, that's it's a different type of sales, but it's engaging people, seeing if you can help them exploring. So yeah, I had a reasonable amount of sales experience. I just generally like it. I mean, if you think of what, what you really do in sales, it's go out, meet some people, hopefully they're nice people, talk to them about what their problems are, and then seeing if you can help and. And it equally not not kind of bluffing and saying, I can help if you can't. I think that's most of what, what there is to sales, building relationships, which most people like doing already. So, yeah, I wasn't too daunted by that. But equally, I guess in this particular case, my pre-existing networks weren't necessarily in seismic. So it's as much bringing in people with the right networks and who can talk the seismic lingo even better than I can. That was really helpful. And even if you're the best salesperson in the world, I still think you need a team to scale at the rate we want to. I mean, we're, we're very much after getting to that unicorn status as quick as we can. And the best salesperson in the world couldn't do that on their own. You kind of need a team who are there. I guess going back to the hiring side as well, another interesting lesson for me is through this journey is it's almost we pick people on their culture. So are, are they a good fit? Do they believe in the mission? Are they going to form part of the team rather than primarily on expertise. So obviously expertise is super important, but given a choice of a world-leading expert or an almost world-leading expert, if the almost world-leading expert had the right culture, I'd, I'd go that way personally. So so really think about the fit with the wider team because with a small group of you early on, it's really important. You're going to go through a massive roller coaster of emotions. There's going to be highs where everyone's like parting together and, and lows, but it, if you've got someone who doesn't quite isn't part of that team and doesn't quite buy into what we're trying to achieve, that, that's going to actually be quite disruptive. So that was the lesson as well. What do you ask candidates to sort of 
get an idea if they would be a good fit? Like what kind of questions do you ask them during the hiring process to, to get a good understanding? Because obviously you can read somebody's LinkedIn profile and their resume and get an idea of what they've done. But you know, when, when you get that person in front of you, what do you ask them to understand if they would be a good fit? It's a good question. Some of it's just that, and it's a bit cliche, but kind of, do you strike up a good conversation? I think a lot of it's, yes, the questions you ask are important, but also how someone approaches it. So say for a sales role, someone who turns up really nervous, it's an understandable human emotion, but if they're nervous in a conversation like we're having now, that's kind of an initial trigger. I guess the questions are very much tailored to the role, so, so they would vary quite a bit. Obviously, we look at LinkedIn and CVs beforehand. So we kind of pre-screen people based on CVs, bring in the top candidates. Often, I, the kind of questions I find really insightful are we give them an understanding of where we're going as a company and the product. And then it's kind of how would you, what would you contribute to that vision? Or based on the little bit we spoke about, where, where would you take the product if it's an engineering or a commercial role? Or what would you do next? So it's nice open questions, which really give someone a chance to express who they are, give an idea into their thought process, but also see if their ideas are the kind of ideas that either you've thought of already or, or maybe they come up with a great, great idea as well. I know some people kind of agonize over really deep, really difficult technical questions. I think for us, it's a lot less than that. So, so in a technical interview, I want to I want to know, and I'm not the person to assess that, but I'd have someone else who's more technically competent. But obviously, I want to know, are you technically capable? But it's, it's much more about how are you going to fit? Is the personality right? How are you under extreme pressure? That's a reality of startup life. It's kind of, there will be, days or weeks where everyone's kind of having to go flat out how, how do you cope in that scenario those kind of things do you ever look for anything that might not necessarily be on the resume as far as like something that somebody's done like i know for instance when i would interview people and look for people for different roles one of the things that i found was really interesting is that people who had sort of played some sort of organized sport were typically really good at being coached and could be coachable and were you know they were quote unquote, team players. They understood what it meant to work collaboratively as a team and, and to try and push objectives that are overall you know great for the organization. So I would ask people, you know, if they ever played any sports or anything like that, is do you do anything similar to that where you look for something that's not on the resume? I guess in any conversation, you look for a kind of common ground. I love sport myself, all sorts of sports. So, so yeah, that conversation might come up, but equally, it's not to say if someone said, I hate sport, that I'd go, okay, interview over. <laughs> but I know what you mean. Yeah, I definitely probe into what someone likes outside of work. I think that's quite important. It gives you an insight. And, and not necessarily do you play team sports, but yeah, get a feel for other someone who likes working in a team and, and as you said, being coached or being a small part of a bigger whole. Or are they that person who's very happy on their own? And depending on the role, either could be absolutely right. So some of our coders, for example, they're naturally introverts. They love sitting in a quiet room and creating this beautiful code. And, and that's the perfect kind of personality type. So, so yeah, I think it's role dependent. But yeah, definitely it's strange until you do what do the journey I've been through, but you kind of quite rapidly recognize in interview, is this the right person? There's some kind of, and I can't describe it well, yeah, very quickly you kind of build that connection or, or don't and someone's answers the quality of their answers and, and how I, I put a lot of a lot of weight in how they think so i will normally drop in a question which is make someone actually go through a thought process you kind of understand how do they solve problems for example yeah that's a good one what's been probably the the biggest challenge that you've had since switching from bp to to running stride full-time it's a good question. I think some of it's just a mindset change. So in a corporate, you're used to having a boss and, and in a startup, that isn't the case. You've still got shareholders or investors who, who obviously have a big interest, but it's 
part of it is getting used to not asking for permission to do things, just yeah, go do it or giving people the confidence to go and try something. And and also very much, I think another thing that's changed, in a lot of corporates talk about having an appropriate appetite for failure, but I think in a startup world, it's it's really important. So I'd much rather people in the company, and, and we, we do this all the time, try something and kind of identify if it works or not as soon as possible and then fail fast, learn from it, move on to the next idea. So very much that fail fast mentality and and yeah, just helping people be as good as they can, kind of building a team and inspiring people. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. There's so many layers to the journey of, of building a company and scaling it up. It's a, yeah, it's a fantastic experience. So as you continue to scale, what are some of the next target areas that you want, like target markets that you want to enter? I think it's in some ways a bit of a boring answer, but it's more of the same. So I think in Europe now, we've got a really strong geothermal position. So loads and loads of the geothermal surveys happening in Europe are using Stride. Obviously, I want to take that. So, so where we're strong in geothermal in Europe, I want to take that, say, to the US or Indonesia, other kind of geothermal hotspots. I think keep growing globally. I definitely, so we're just, just opening our US office. So really, we've got clients in the US already, but really scaling there. I think it's a market we can make a huge difference in. Definitely, there's massive potential in mining. It's, it's, it's an area where we thought, we thought there'd be something in mining, but the reception's been fantastic. So kind of, we're probably every week we've got mining companies putting us up now saying, oh, I've heard about your system. Can we try it or can we buy it? So yeah, just keep growing as we are. Really get to that position where we're the, almost the technology of choice, the default technology for any type of seismic. And I think, I think if you're in the market and you understand the other products and we win on all fronts. So as I said, it's, it's smaller and light, which means it's more portable, it's safer, it's faster. You get a better image just because on a, on a one-to-one basis, our sensor's as good as any other, but you can put a lot more nodes out. So back to adding more pixels to your TV, if you like, in the seismic world. So one more question before we before we wrap up here. I like to ask this of all leaders of companies, but can you explain your leadership style? Can you give a description of your leadership style, how you like to lead? And in a time that we have, like right now, where a lot of people are virtual and you're managing teams in different parts of the world, how do you lead from a distance? And you know, just explain your leadership style. Yeah, it's probably quite different. It's interesting. I think a lot of people have a vision of the CEO, the kind of old star CEO, very much a top down, you'll do what I say. And that's not me at all. I'm much more collaborative with people. I place a lot of importance in trust. I want them to trust me and be open with me and vice versa. And I'd say have a lot of empathy for the people around you. You're all on this amazing journey together, but equally kind of recognize when people are feeling down, what can you do to get them out of that side? So say we, as good as our product is, we'll lose some key deals once in a while. So when that happens, how do you quickly get people to step back, realize it's not the end of the world, learn from what we've done and, and get back up again. So yeah, I'd say from my side, it's very much focusing on on the people in the company as well as the clients outside. The external side, very much just be open, honest, share where we've got limitations, but also where we're strong and, and let people decide. I'm lucky in that it's a very differentiated product. So it's a pretty easy decision for most people to go with our technology. So, so that helps a lot. And it's more about being trust, being responsible and, and open and, and a good partner for our customers. Excellent. Excellent. How can people learn more about you? How can they connect with Stride? Where do they need to go to, to find out? Yeah, two main options. So the website, which is www.strideferther.com and Stride is with a Y. So it's S-T-R-Y-D-E further.com or just hit me up on LinkedIn. I love connecting with people and always got time to meet new people and, and hopefully help them on a similar journey. Awesome. Awesome. Mike, I really appreciate you taking some time today and you know telling the listeners about the company and your journey, sort of the things that you've done along the way and how you've managed to make the transition, but 
you know, how you, I mean, went from one to 50 people in 18 months in nine different countries. That's as definitely, it sounds like you've had a lot of sleepless nights, I'd probably imagine. Definitely. But I really appreciate that. And is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with before we go? No, just thank you for, thank you for having me today. And thank you for people for listening. Hopefully there's the odd nugget in there, which proves helpful. So excellent. Excellent. Well, you guys keep up the fire over there and we will catch up with you guys on the high ground. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for July 2021. This month we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time. So if you're always interested in staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on July 29th. Our June happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the June one, we hope to see you there this month at our July happy hour. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Don't forget that it's on July 29th. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events. The first one being the Doug Permian and Eagle Ford Conference at the Fort Worth Convention Center from July 12th to July 14th. And the next in-person event is the SPE International Data Science Convention at the Norris Convention Center in Houston, Texas on July 8th. Next, we have our two online events. The first being a Cognite webinar titled From Buzzwords to Boardrooms, What Energy Leaders Really Think About the Transition Towards True Sustainability. And that's on July 8th from 11.30 to 12.30. And lastly, we have the U.S. Africa Energy Forum, which is online on July 12th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for July. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.